Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Laboring in Employment, a monthly podcast series on Asia employment law issues. I'm Wendy. And I'm Clarence. We're part of the Simmons and Simmons employment team. Clarence, Singapore has been in the news again, this time in respect of a parliamentary debate around immigration policies. Can you tell us about what's going on there and why is immigration such a thorny issue in Singapore? Wendy, these are great questions, and I hope to be able to unpack that for you and for our listeners in the course of this episode. Let me first begin by setting the scene. The date is January 2013. It's the Halcyon Days post-global financial crisis, and global economies are riding a wave of growth. There is unbridled optimism in the air, and times are good. In order to combat falling birth rates in Singapore, the government publishes a population-wide paper, very imaginatively titled, A Sustainable Population for a Dynamic Singapore. The white paper projects an increase in Singapore's population to 6.9 million people by 2030. This means an increase of 100,000 people in Singapore each year, with the addition of 30,000 new permanent residents and 25,000 naturalised citizens annually. The white paper is very quickly politicised and seized upon by opposition politicians as proof that the Singapore government was embarking on an economic growth at all costs policy, which would have the effect of marginalising Singaporeans in the job market, thereby resulting in overcrowding and rising income inequality. Academics also joined the fray and criticised the white paper for being, I quote, overly mechanistic, economically simplistic, astonishingly sociologically and politically naive, end quote. The backlash is, by Singapore standards, brutal and would go on to haunt the Singapore government at the next round of elections in 2015. Stung by the level of vitriol directed at the white paper and by extension itself, the Singapore government seeks to backpedal from the projected figures, but the die has been cast. In an attempt to repair the damage, the Singapore government subsequently rolls out a series of policies aimed at helping local businesses and the proverbial man in the street, the core demographic of its electorate, if I might add. This is best encapsulated by the catchphrase, developing a strong Singaporean core of employees, which we have now become very familiar with. This is, of course, a simplification and a slight caricature of the issues, but I think it accurately encapsulates the prevailing sentiments and illustrates why immigration is such a thorny issue for us. And this is not a problem that's unique to Singapore. In recent years, we have seen the rise of similar movements in other liberal democracies. For, for instance, we have the Donald Trump administration, which can be uh, encapsulated by the slogan, Make America Great Again, which was at its heart about bringing industry home and creating jobs for blue-collar Americans. And the second one, part of the message that was peddled to voters in the UK uh, around the time of Brexit was about the UK exiting the single market and ending free movement of people across the EU, thereby creating more jobs and employment opportunities at home. 
So what are some of the features of the Singapore government's policy to develop a strong Singaporean core of employees? The policy of developing a strong Singaporean core of employees, uh, I feel, needs to be understood within the context of the fair employment practices developed by the tripartite partners. So, on the one hand, you have the tripartite guidelines on fair employment practices, whose stated purpose is to help organisations, again I quote, adopt fair and merit-based employment practices. This includes the following five principles which employers are expected to follow, namely recruiting based on merit, respecting employees, providing fair opportunities, rewarding fairly, and complying with labour laws. And on the other hand, you have the fair consideration framework, which allows all employers uh, sorry, which requires all employers to consider Singaporeans fairly for job opportunities and not to adopt discriminatory hiring practices. In practical terms, this means advertising job vacancies on the National Jobs Bank, which is open to Singapore citizens and permanent residents for a minimum period of time. Secondly, demonstrating what steps have been taken to source for employees locally and thirdly, only looking externally to foreign candidates if the local pool of candidates is found to be inadequate. So based on what you've said, Clarence, there seems to be a contradiction between the tripartite guidelines on fair employment practices and the fair consideration framework. The former's reference to merit-based recruitment suggests that the best person for the job should get the job, but the latter's requirement to proactively consider Singaporeans suggests an inherent bias towards hiring locally. That's absolutely right. The Singapore government has tried to explain this away by stating this is not intended to create a locals first policy which is akin to the Bumibutra policy, which prioritizes Malays and other indigenous locals in Malaysia, but rather to simply ensure that employers consider local candidates fairly. This sounds reasonable enough to me. Yes, but this explanation becomes a bit disingenuous when you realize that there are quota requirements which organizations must adhere to. For S-passes, for example, the total number of S-pass holders cannot exceed 18% of the company's total workforce. In some instances, that could go up to 20%, depending on the sector. For employment passes, there are no fixed quotas, but it's an open secret that the Singapore government expects uh, companies to maintain a ratio of one employment pass holder for every two local employees whom it employs. Are there any penalties for failing to adhere to these quotas? Yes. For S-passes, employers who exceed their quotas will not be allowed to apply for or renew S-passes in excess of the quota. And for employment passes, employers whose ratios are out of alignment with their industry peers or whose employment pass holders comprise a high concentration of a single nationality, may be placed on the Fair Consideration Framework watch list, where they will face enhanced scrutiny of their hiring practices and face protracted delays 
in having their employment pass applications approved. Companies will be given a period of time to improve in order to get off this watch list, failing which they will be placed on a blacklist and prohibited from hiring uh, foreigners for up to two years at a stretch. There seems to be an assumption underpinning these policies that employers will be able to find local employees with the requisite skills in most cases and that hiring foreigners is only justified as the exception. Does this align with what you're seeing on the ground? I think you've hit the nail on the head with that, Wendy. One of the big issues which multinational corporations face, particularly those in very niche or specialised industries, is the sheer lack of local talent or individuals with the necessary experience for certain roles. This is very prevalent in the financial and tech sectors, where Singapore just doesn't have enough local talent. Isn't this a question for employers and multinationals needing to do more to train up local employees with the right skill set to then take on the roles? After all, Singapore has been a financial and tech hub for over a decade now. That's a fair comment to make, Wendy. I don't think the problem lies with employers not having done enough to train up local employees for these specialised roles. Looking at the tech sector, while the number of employment passes granted in the last 15 years increased by 25,000, the number of jobs created for local employees increased by 35,000. And in the finance sector, the number of employment passes granted over the same 15-year period increased by 20,000, while the number of jobs created for local employees increased by 85,000. The reality is that the local talent pool is just not big enough, particularly as the Singapore economy continues to grow. This was, ironically, a fact recognised by the Singapore government in the population-wide paper. Eight years on from that, Singapore's birth rate continues to fall, even as we continue to have one of the lowest unemployment rates in the world. I think that answers the question as to why immigration is such a thorny issue in Singapore. But returning very briefly to my initial question, what aspect of Singapore's immigration policies caused a furore in the parliament recently? What you're referring to is the ability for a foreigner to gain the right to work in Singapore as as an intra-corporate transferee pursuant to the terms of an applicable free trade agreement, which Singapore is a signatory to. This was in the news recently as opposition politicians had questioned whether these free trade agreements were being used to give certain foreigners effectively a free hand, quote-unquote, to come and work in Singapore. As free trade agreements confer a myriad of benefits aimed at reducing barriers to trade, including tariff concessions, preferential access to certain sectors, and faster entry into markets, it is not difficult to see how such a perception could arise. But is this really the case in practice? No, it isn't. And to be clear, the provision around the movement of natural persons, which are contained in numerous free trade agreements which Singapore has signed, do not grant these intra-corporate transferees an unfettered and unconditional entry to Singapore. To begin with, the ICT route is fairly restrictive. 
for example, ICTs are limited to transfers between entities of the same group. They are restricted to uh, employees in the professionals, managers, and executives class of employees only. They must meet the prevailing conditions for a work pass. They are only permitted to remain in Singapore for a fixed period of time, and they cannot be localized or transferred in permanently after that period has ended. And lastly, in many cases, they are not even allowed to bring their dependents along with them to Singapore. The reality of the matter is that Singapore has no natural resources, as I'm sure you know, and it's too small to survive on its own. Globalization, therefore, is key to ensuring our economy continues to grow and thrive. And for that, we need to be able to bring in uh, the bestest, uh, the sorry, the best and brightest talents to our shores. Thanks, Clarence. And on that note, it's time for us to round up this discussion on Singapore. I hope you found this episode interesting. Thanks, Wendy. And if you have any questions, do reach out to either of us. Please stay tuned for the next episode. Until then, take care. <laughs>